This is the Southern Hills Church of God, and this is our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today. We hope this inspires you and guides you and builds your faith. God bless and enjoy this message. That you would be with us, and it's in your name I pray. And everybody said, amen and amen. 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to be sharing quite a bit from there. We have a lot of other scriptures that we're going to get to before that, but I'm going to hit them real quick. That You won't have time to turn, but 1 Samuel chapter 2, if you'll go ahead and go there with me, that's where we're going to spend the majority of our message today. 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse number 12, but we're going to get there later on. The word glory is a multicolored word, right? It's a word that has many different contexts, many different meanings within Scripture. And in one place, in, in the Word of God, it is referred to as a place. If you go ahead and put up the very first passage, and it says, And my God, listen, will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his what? Of his glory, right, okay. It's also referred to in Scripture as a type of praise. Revelation chapter 7 says, that says, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength to our God forever and ever. The Bible also refers to the word glory as a people. It says, Indeed, you are our glory and joy. The Bible refers to the word glory as a position in Christ. Watch what it says. It says, and the grace and the God of all grace who called you to his what? Eternal glory. It's a position that you have in Christ Jesus after you have suffered just a little while and himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. The Bible also references the word glory as a pronouncement in Romans chapter 2. It says, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. Listen, it also talks about glory in reference to the very presence of God. It says, and the priest could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The Bible references the word glory as proof of God. In Psalm chapter 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. The Bible references the word glory as the person of God. Colossians chapter 1, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the what glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The word glory has many meanings. It also talks about the prophecy of God, the second coming of Jesus in Luke chapter 21. It says, at that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and with what? With great glory. The word glory talks about the product of his suffering. Watch what it says in Romans chapter 8. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his You see the word glory appears in scripture 395 times. And in many of these cases it means something different within the context of that scripture there all there's also a story in the bible that in in context refers to the negative impact of glory and that's when the glory has departed and the glory has left and we're going to talk about that today in first samuel you find this curse on the home of eli 
and his sons. First Samuel chapter 2, you discover why God did what he did. In chapter 4, the glory departed and they lost two major battles and 34,000 soldiers in just two battles. As a result of that, the Ark of the Covenant was taken and the enemy of Israel took it. Eli's sons were killed and Eli himself died a tragic death. Even his daughter-in-law, while giving birth to Eli's grandson, uh, passed away and his name was Ichabod. And as long as that child lived, his name became a remembrance of God's glory departing from Israel and from the house of Eli. The first um, a few chapters of this book, you learn that God's people can be God's people yet still not have the glory of God. Which means this, you can do every right thing you know to do and you can still miss the glory because the glory isn't about a song. The glory isn't about a message. The glory isn't about an acts of service, but it's about the attitude in which I do them. And when I do them with the attitude of, Lord, bless me, Lord, keep me, when I go in this with the attitude that it's not about me, but it's all about him, then the glory of God comes down and can fill your heart. I also learned that God's glory is fragile to God's people, but God's enemies are scared to death of His glory. I have found that I don't lead God's glory, but God's glory leads me. I have found that God's glory is not an event or an experience, but it is abiding under His very presence. That's where the glory of God comes. It's more than a personal experience. It's a very large covering that God gives to all of that God gives to us all the time to abide and live in his glory. It's not a possession, but it's a lifestyle. It's a process. It is a continual walk of holiness where we get to experience God in all of his glory. And I want to ask you this question today. Can we grieve the glory? Like Eli, like, like Eli did, we can grieve the glory as ministers. Like his children, we can grieve glory as individuals. As we can grieve the glory in our home. Even his daughter-in-law played a part in this message. We learned that as a nation, we can grieve the glory. The glory departed from Israel. Do I, I grieve every time I turn on the news. Can we be honest? I was watching the news this morning and just got upset and had to walk out of, out, of, out of the room. I grieve at what we have become. I grieve at what we're doing behind closed doors. I grieve at the laws that are being put in place that are against the very word of God. I grieve. I've learned that we can grieve the glory as a nation. And then according to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, churches can grieve the glory of God by the way that they act and Show themselves. So what causes the glory to be grieved? First Samuel chapter 3. Don't go there. We're going to go back to 2. But First Samuel chapter 3, the verses up on the screen, it said, The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. You see, that was the departure of the glory. When the light went out, the glory left. The ark was nothing more than an apparatus without the glory of God. Israel saw the ark as their lucky charm, but it was nothing without the presence of God. Listen, man, I, you are nothing without the glory of God. 
The glory is contained in God himself. And then when the lamp went out, the glory departed. When I cook at the house, and I love to cook, I made some chicken and steaks last night. It was delicious. But when I cook, I just have a couple rules. My rules are that when I sit at the table, that everybody sits together. I have a rule that you eat what is prepared. And then I have a rule that you clean up after yourself. I'll pay the price for the food. I'll cook the food. I'll even place the table. All I need for you to do is sit with me, eat what's prepared, and take your dish to the sink. Not that hard, is it? Just a couple rules to enjoy a nice meal. Yet my children sometimes find it hard to do those things. They don't always want to sit with us. They would rather watch TV or play games and eat on the couch. They don't always like what I cook. Well, I'd rather have this, not that. I, I wish you'd cook this one just a little bit different. I like it that way, not this way. And they don't always clean up after themselves. And I have to constantly remind them that after you eat, just take your plate to the sink. It's not that hard. You get up and walk to the couch, you can get up and walk to the sink. It's not that big of a deal. Yet when I have to constantly remind them to do something over and over and they don't do it, it grieves me. It upsets me when I have rules that have been set in place since they've been born and I've repeatedly told them what to do during, pre, during, and after a meal and those things aren't done. It grieves me. Look, I, I, I just want to spend time with them. I just want to sit at the table with my children. The price of groceries today, how many of you can attest that they have gone way up? Amen. Groceries are expensive. But it's not about the price. It's okay. I'll, I can handle the price. Just sit down with me. Just have a meal with me. I get that you don't always like everything that I cook, but just be respectful of the fact that not everybody has what you have and just sit down and eat what's on your plate. Be grateful for what you have and don't consume yourself with what you don't. Now that, now that will preach. And then after it's all over, just clean up the area around you because it's contagious. Clean, clean, uh, cleanliness is contagious. I like things in order. That's the OCD part of me. I like things clean. My children inherited their traits from their mother, and I love their mother very much so. But I like things done a certain way. And is it too much to say if you do all these things, if you just sit with me, if you just eat what I have prepared, if you just clean up the mess after you, then maybe, just maybe, after it's all over, I'll have a special treat or dessert or a sweet that you can snack on. And I don't know about you, but I, I like my food, but I love my cheesecake. I like my food, but that apple cobbler and that peach cobbler, I'm telling you, there's something hev heavenly about that. But it only comes when everything else is done. What grieves the heart of God? You see, when it all started, we didn't have a seat at his table. 
The Bible says that we were born into sin. The Bible says that we were destined for hell. That because of who we are, because we had a sin nature in us, that we didn't have a seat at the table. But the price that he paid was much. The price that he paid was everything that he had. And he sent his one and only son to the earth to die for your sins so that you could have a seat at the table. He just wanted you to have a seat. It wasn't about the cost. The cost was much. He just wanted to be with you. But what do we do? We make excuses for not spending time with him. Well, I'm too busy. I've got too much going on. My schedule just doesn't allow much more time. And we don't pray like we once used to. We don't worship like we once used to. We don't serve in the church that we once used to. And in 2021, here's where the church has gone. We don't come to church as much as we used to. No offense. God help me. We've allowed the comfort of our homes to be a reason why we don't attend church anymore. Well, I can just watch it on TV. We've said, now what should I do with all this extra time? Well, I'll just get involved in so much stuff that my prayer time just goes beyond the way. It just, it just, it's non-existent anymore. And how dare us get to that place when the price that he paid wasn't something that he had to do, but he did it because he loved you. So he prepares us this table. And then he sets you a plate. And all he asks us to do is to be grateful and thankful for what you have. Eat what's been prepared. But too many times we grieve the Holy Spirit of God, the glory of God, because we only see sometimes what we don't have. And we forget to give God all the praise for the things that we do have. We question and say, well, why don't I have this? And why hasn't this happened? And where has this been? And he's saying, but what you have on your plate is the best that I have to offer. If we just take the time to praise God and to give God thanks for the things that we do have and not concern ourselves with the things that we don't, maybe, just maybe, the glory of God won't depart from me. Be grateful that you have a job. Be grateful that your children are healthy. Be grateful that your marriage is life-giving. Be grateful. Don't put your mind to what you don't have. Praise Him for what you do have. And then all he says is he says to clean up your mess. He says to keep your area clean, to stay holy, to live a life pure, to obey God. Don't live in sin. Why? Because sin gets messy. Sin gets you in trouble. Sin takes you much farther than you ever thought that you would go. But see, my kids can obey and eat their food and still sometimes get messy. That's why the scripture tells us to make allowance for other people's faults. Because again, I've shared it two weeks in a row and I'll share it again. If your name is not Jesus, you are not perfect. 
There's going to be times you're going to mess up. There's going to be times that you just might backslide. There's going to be times where you might do something that grieves your very soul. And I'm telling you, that's why when he sent his son, that he created this thing called grace. That we can go to the, um, uh, we can go to God and say, God, forgive me of my sin. And when he does, it's almost as if it never happened. Because the grace of God will cover you. He has given us an option and out. But a chance yet again not to just be clean, but another chance to clean your plate and to get things right, which you didn't do the first time. And then if we do everything that we should, he gives us a little bit of dessert. And he says that if you obey me and that you love me and that you accept me into your heart and you live a life that's pure and acceptable and holy to me, then I have created a place for you, a place called heaven, where there is no more pain, where there is no more sickness, where there is no more danger, no more oppression, no more sin, no more hatred, no more anger. It's a perfect place in the presence of an almighty God. So with that in mind, what do we do that grieves the glory of God? Because in this process of a great meal, there are things that we do that grieve Him. And no offense, but we need to clean up our act. And we need to get things right and we need to set things straight because your eternity depends on your willingness to obey the Word of God. And maybe just not you, but your entire home, your household, your children, your spouse, your cousins, your grandkids, your great-grandkids, your great-great-grandkids for generations to generations might be impacted by what you do today. So from chapter 2, we learn what grieves the glory of God. And I want to show you in 1 Samuel chapter 2 the things that the people did that caused the glory of God to be grieved. In verse 13, it talks about the priest's custom. It tells us what his custom was. It, it wasn't just a tradition or something that was made up. It was something that God had prescribed. Therefore, it was a special act. It was something that God had spoken and instituted. But when you read it, you find that the sons of Eli said, I don't have to do this. 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse number 12. Go ahead and put that up. It says, Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priest that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up to the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came from Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first, and then what? take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. So the first thing we see that grieves the heart of the Lord is rebellion. Rebellion is such a, a, a small thing that we don't often see sometimes. It, it, it's saying, I know what I should do. I know what is right. I know what pleases the Lord, but I choose not to do it. God protects us when we do right. And not only does he protect us, but he provides for us when, when, when we need him. The Bible says that rebellion is like witchcraft. 
I know I should not lie, but I do anyway. I know I should not drink, but I do it anyway. I know I should not sin, but I do it anyway. I know I should not gossip, but I do it anyway. I know I should not. I know I should not. I know I should not, but I'm going to rebel against the Lord and do it anyway. In church, you can get mad if you want, but it's a sin. It's a sin. And if we're not careful, our children are going to take practice after what they see us do. And we're going to practice for them a life of sin. And before we know it, it might be too long down the road before I can't change them anymore that they have to have that life experience for themselves. I'm telling you, rebellion, rebellion is as witchcraft in the eyes of God. And Eli's sons decided to rebel and do their own thing in the very moment that they began to become an island unto themselves, they grieved God and lost His glory. What are we doing that we should not do, but we choose to do anyway? Number two, the second avenue that was brought into these people's lives is picked up at the end of verse 16. And I want us to go back there and, and to do it now. It says, if the person said to him, let the fat be burned first, then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. I want it now. I want it now. The impatience of the servant. You see, in doing some of the prescribed customs that God had ordained, you had to wait for a certain part of the sacrifice. But the sons of Eli said that they were not going to wait. They said, we want it now. Not only do we find them re, 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 to, in rebellion with the word, but now we find impatience. I see an immature Christian. I see the desire to get something quick regardless of the consequence. And the very root of all of this is pride. Pride says, I'll move now and do it my way without anybody else's permission. This kind of impatient pride grieves the glory of God. Pride will grieve the glory of God. This kind of pride sits at the table eats their food, push it to, pushes it to the side and expects God to just pick it up and then wanting the dessert when we haven't done anything to deserve it. Do you know that Paul waited 18 years before he ever started on his very first journey? He spent a year in Arabia, three years in, in, um, in, in, in um, Jerusalem. 14 years in Antioch, he was patient and waited until Acts chapter um, 13 when the word said, as they ministered to the Lord, the Holy Ghost said, separate me a Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. I'm sure there were many moments within those 18 years where Paul wished he'd been used quicker. But I'm telling you, we don't ever read in scripture where pride got in the way where he questioned God and what he did. He waited his turn. There's a warning here to us. We must watch the door that lets pride inside my heart. God will bless you and will do great things. But if pride gets in your heart, you grieve the glory. God said in his word, I will share my glory with no man. I will share this with no man. Don't ever try to get God's glory. It's his glory, and he won't share it with just anyone. If I try to take it, he will pack it up and take it somewhere else just like he did with Eli. I need you to understand this. We are nothing. I don't care how talented you are, how great of a speaker, how great of a drummer, guitar player, a pianist, how well you sing. I don't care how well you teach. We are nothing without the glory of God. Number three, we see a reprobate mind. 
in verse 22. It says, Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Romans chapter 1 says that God turned people over to a reprobate mind. Do we understand this? Have, have you ever known someone who wants to walk mightily with God but today are living with the shame and in their shame of their past guilt because they don't know how to get past it? They just live the same way that, that, that this shame has taken them. And shame, what does shame say? Shame says, because I did bad, therefore I am bad. That's what shame does. And I'm telling you, that's not what the Bible says. It says if you do bad, then you ask the Lord to forgive you, and He will forgive your sin, and you will be made clean, and you will be made pure. You don't have to live in your shame. You, you don't have to say, I did bad, therefore I am bad, and keep living that way. No, the God of all gods, the only God that is sitting alive today, can forgive you of your sin. So what happens? Why do people live in shame? Why do people live in the guilt of their past mess-ups? Because ever so slightly, day by day, they move just a little bit farther away from God and then justify their actions by saying it's not that big of a deal. God never winks at sin. What God called sin a million years ago is still sin today. The glory of God, listen church, the glory of God will not house itself in sin. There are people that will miss out on the very glory of God because they have sin in their heart. And some people don't see it. What do we call that? It's called a blind spot. It's when other people see it and you don't see it. And then when other people try to tell you it's there, you deny the very existence of it being there. It's called a blind spot. Well, I'm okay. I can handle this. It's not too much for me. I won't let it go too far. And those are the very words that when you say them, it ends up opening a door to your heart where they end up going that far. And you end up doing something and saying something that you later regret and may even feel this shame over. But I'm telling you, that's not the end because we have a God who gave you grace. Number four, verses 24 and 25, Eli goes to his sons and tells them they can't live the way that they're living and do what they are doing. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 24, No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may meditate for the offender. But listen, but if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to the, his rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. What you have is a desire without discipline. Amen. You have a desire without discipline. You have a desire without discipline. Anybody watch the Oklahoma game last night or yesterday? I told my wife about the start of quarter number four. I said, church is going to be empty tomorrow. People are going to be upset that Oklahoma lost. And then they came back and they won. And I said, praise God, the church house will be full. But let me tell you what I saw yesterday in that game. You have a team who wanted it more than Oklahoma did. Let's just be honest and let's be real about it. 
They wanted it more than Oklahoma, so they came out and they started scoring. And Oklahoma got behind. But some teams just know how to win. You see, you can play bad and you can, you can win yet. Why? Because I know how to. I know how to win. And what you had here is you had a desire to come back and the discipline to make it happen. Texas doesn't have the discipline yet. Now, they're getting there. Just um, a warning, Oklahoma, Texas, if that keeps on going, it's going to be a doozy. But yesterday what I saw was that there was no discipline to come back because a desire without discipline gets you nowhere. I can want it so bad, but if I don't put the work into it to make it happen, it's not going to happen. I can want 200 people here on every Sunday morning, but unless we do things to make it happen, it's not going to get there. I can't just sit back and expect God to just do it without me deserving it. You see, there comes a time when the discipline has to go with the desire to make it happen. And you've got Eli's sons here that, that maybe, you know, wanted it, but there was no discipline. They couldn't stop the sin that they were doing. Therefore, the glory of God departed from them. God's glory will not stay in a life where there is no discipline. Desire is not enough. Sincerity is not enough. We must understand, number one, I am responsible for my behavior. Not my spouse, not my church, and not my pastor. You and I are responsible for ourselves. We learn, number two, I can change if I want to. Number three, my behavior will only change once I've measured myself according to the word of God. Desire with discipline brings about change. Desire without discipline brings no change. Number five, we learn in verse number 27 and 28 that what they did was that the sacred became a mundane. God sent a man to God. God sent a man of God to Eli's house. He says to him that God had given him a strength, that your lineage has been priests of God. You've come from a special home. You're a special man, and great things have happened to you. Here is what caused God to be grieved. Listen, Eli felt like he knew to be a priest because his lineage was just priest, priest, priest. I know how to do this. So his strength became his weakness because pride set in. His strength became his weakness because he said, I don't have to have God. I know how to do this myself. Is that not what Cain did? Cain's strength was that he could grow crops. He had a green thumb, but his strength became his weakness when he gave God less than his best. Look at David. Saul had slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. But it was David who could conquer others, but couldn't conquer himself. His strength became his weakness. Look at Elijah. He prayed down fire from heaven. And miracle after miracle after miracle. But then watch him later on in the story underneath the, um, the tree asking for God to just end it all. Because he was so depressed. His strength became his weakness. Look at Simon Peter, who had an ability with words. He could preach and he could speak. He said, I will never deny you, Jesus. But then what did he do? The very mouth that he called his strength became his weakness because he said, I can do this in my own strength. I can do this. I don't need God. 
And Eli's son said, I don't need God. We, have, we are in a lineage of priests. I can do this. And here's the warning. The King James puts it like this. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. You will never have it made. You can't ever look at somebody else and say, I'd never do that. It's prideful. How many pastors in the past few years have lost their church because of moral fails? Oh, I could go list down the list. Don't ever say you won't do it or you can't do it because the enemy can use that pride and he can cause that thought to become an action. And before you know it, you're so far into it, you don't know how to get back out. Your strength becomes your weakness. So what's my advice? Don't ever put yourself in a, in a position to sin. Don't ever put yourself in a position to sin. Because Satan knows that your weakness can become your trap. And your trap can become your demise. Check out number six. You can grieve the heart of God, the glory of God, when you take special things lightly. And I'm going to use it like this, and no offense, don't be mad at me. But we take the meeting together for granted. Well, I can miss this week. I've still got next week. Tomorrow's not promised. I told a friend the other day, a very good friend, a friend that I love dearly, That you don't have long to make this thing called life work. So do it right the first time. Do it right the first time. Because when it comes to that day, when I have to lay here and somebody preach my home going, I don't want it to be said of me that he lived his life With regret. That he wanted to make a difference but never did. That he wanted his children to grow up and love God. But he failed. We can't take things for granted. Children. All you parents, grandparents, senior adults. You know the preciousness of a child. The innocence of a child. I take my parenting in all seriousness. Because when I'm done, I want my children to preach my home going. And say, my dad loved the Lord. And because he loved the Lord, we love the Lord. First Samuel chapter 1 verse 29. He said, why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me? Listen. Why do you honor your sons more than me? Why have you changed your priorities to fit your schedule and your agenda instead of mine? Why have we prioritized things in our life that in the end have no heavenly meaning? 
So, Pastor, what's the answer? Eli's children did a lot of bad things, and therefore the glory of God departed from them. So what's the answer? First Chronicles, chapters 13, 14. It's 21 years later. God's glory had left. The ark stayed seven months in one home, 20 years with another one. And after 20 years and seven months of being without the glory, David becomes king, and he's ready to go get the ark. David, in his zeal, gets some people and goes to the house where it's at. With him comes a man named Yuza who went with David. They put the ark in a brand new vehicle right off the showroom floor. They gave God the best that they had and two of the best drivers. They started walking with the ark. With the ark, the oxen fell, and Yuza reached back to make sure the ark didn't fall, and he fell dead from the glory of God. He falls off the cart. David's upset. He's confused. David takes the ark and moves it into a house by the name of Obed-Edom. The ark stayed there for three months. David goes back to the palace to complain and gripe to God because he's not, it's not happening the way that he wants it to happen. And how many of us have done the very thing where we've gone back to our home and we've griped and complained to God because things aren't working out the way that we want them to? You see, he's complaining because Obed-Edom's house is getting blessed. It's being blessed and blessed and blessed and blessed and blessed. And David's not getting anything. You see, David wanted the glory, but he didn't go about it the right way. And it's here that you find the answer. You can't get everything that God has if you don't get it with the right attitude. David calls the priest out and asks him to do some research. They told David that they blew it big time, that they messed up. They went back through the law and found that God is a God of perfect detail. That God wants things done a certain way. He wants you to sit at his table. He wants you to eat the food that he's prepared. He wants you to clean up after yourself so that you can have the eternal reward. There's an order to what God wants to do. When Noah built the ark, he went by perfect order and design. When the tabernacle was built, it was the perfect order and design. When Solomon built the temple, it was the perfect order and design. When Jesus died on Calvary, he did so in perfect order and design. There's an order to everything that God does, and David didn't see it. David didn't do it. So he went back and found out what the order was. So he goes back to Obed's house with 862 priests. He, he, we have Obed-Edom gets up out of the bed and looks out his window, and here's 862 preachers in his front lawn. Now what you going to do if you wake up and look out your window, and 862 of me are standing right there. You're like, what in the world is he doing here? There were musicians, there were preachers, there were kings, there were choirs, there were singers, and they had come back to take the ark back to where it was supposed to be. And not only did the town turn out, but watch what happens. 
They go in and pick up the ark. They carry it out and place it on the transport vehicle. They carried it six paces or 18 feet. They sat it down and offered up $2,500 worth of sacrifice before they ever got out of the man's front yard. And they did that every 18 feet. They did that every six paces. They gave God glory. They walked six paces. They placed it down. They shouted because of how good God was. They picked it back up and walked it six more paces. They shouted because of how good God was. They picked it back up and walked six paces. They shouted because of how good God was because they weren't worried about what they didn't have. They saw that the ark was back, that the glory was back, and I wasn't going to mess it up this time. So they picked it up again and walked it six paces and began to shout and praise God because of how good he is. And they did it all the way back to when they got it home. Shh. Can't you hear somebody saying, that's ridiculous, David. That isn't going to work. We'll never get it back to town this way. This is a waste of time. And when they finally got back to town, David, walking out in his white garment, danced and jumped and flopped and ran and did everything you could possibly do. Why? Because after 21 years of the glory departing, it was back. It was back. If everybody would stand, Seth, if you'd come. I want to do something different as we close this out. I'm sorry for going over today. I need to get this out. Not because I want you to be upset with me. I I don't. No offense. No offense. Do you believe that? Do you believe that I love you? No offense. I love you. I just need you to know that I can't live without the glory of God. And I don't want the glory to depart from this place. There's three words that David did in the whole process of going back to get the ark to come back. Number one, he repented. David repented. He changed his mind. He knew something was wrong and he had to correct it. There will be no glory until repentance comes. Number two, the word is return. The glory was right where they left it. (laughs) Do you understand that? The glory left them, but the glory never left. It was right where they left it. And the Lord's telling you, he's telling me, go back to where you lost it. Go back and pick it up again. It was at Obed-Edom's house the whole time. And can I say these altars are a place where you can kneel before God? But the altar is a tool. You can get the glory back right where you are. You can get it back in your car. You can get it back at work. Just return back to where you lost it. 
And then number three, and I think it's the biggest one, David rejoiced because it came back. Church, we have revival starting next week. It's called Revived and Renewed. And I want to share with you about that, and we'll close, I promise. I had a vision from God that said, my church is dead. Now, I'm not talking about Southern Hills. I don't want you to think that I've been going around and telling people that you're dead. The church is dead as a whole. The church is dead. I've been watching a lot of medical shows. My wife's saying, oh, Lord, because I've been watching a lot of medical shows. And whenever the heart stops beating and they call 911, they come and what do they do? They start CPR and they start to pump on your chest to get your heart to beat again. They place those paddles on your chest and they give you a shock to get that heart to be revived. And I'm telling you, the Lord is speaking to his church and saying, I need to revive you again. You have laid dormant for too long. You have been dead for too long and I'm about to revive you. But see, reviving does you no good if you get revived and go back to doing what you were doing before because then you'll just die again. So with the reviving comes a renewing. Do you hear it? Do you hear it? You see, when rain comes, you begin to smell the rain coming. I smell the rain coming. Revival's coming next week because I see his church revived and renewed. Revived and renewed. And we're going to have preachers coming in from all across the United States preaching to us about the revival of God and the renewing of His Spirit. Because it's not me, it's not me, but it's through His Spirit that we are renewed. So what I want us to do right where you are, we are a Pentecostal church, right? And no offense, sometimes we don't act like it. No offense. I love y'all, but sometimes we don't act like it. We are a charismatic Pentecostal church. That means that we let other people know how we feel based on upon our words and our actions. And sometimes that means doing what David did and giving it just a little bit of a dance. So I want us to one, repent. And we're going to start praying. And I want the heavens to hear your voice. I want them to hear you pray. We've got to repent right now of everything that's wrong inside of our heart because the renewing and the reviving doesn't come until you have repented. It takes a repentance to see it come. So right now, shake hell with everything you got and start praying. Lord